Well, praise the Lord. This is Pastor Jerry again coming to you. Praise God in your living room or however you're watching or listening or wherever you're watching and listening. Praise God. Again, we are always thankful and grateful that uh, you're listening in. Praise God. It's always an honor and a privilege to bring the Word of God to you. Today, again, I got another uh, special uh, thing for you here today. And uh, But uh, I just want to tell all of our locals, uh, several of you, it was good to see you last Sunday. Uh, we had a little bit of drive-by blessing thing and and uh, we're just going to tell our locals, too, to be, uh, be listening and watching. And uh, we're probably going to have uh, maybe do something again, maybe this Sunday. We'll see what happens. But uh, either way, um, it's always a good uh, uh, to come at you with the Word of God. Uh, we'd much rather, of course, be uh, preaching live uh, to everybody. But uh, it is what it is, I guess. And so we're just uh, uh, trying to be as, uh, as patient as we can, all right? And uh, so, which has been a little bit of a challenge lately, but, but praise God, again, just thankful that you're watching and listening, amen, and we call you blessed, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, it's good to be with you today. I just want to pray and then we'll get right into the word. Father, we're thankful and we're grateful that we have the word of God before us. We are thankful, Father, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. We are grateful to you, Father, that you are in the midst of us wherever we're at. We thank you that there is no time or distance in the Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you are able to teach us and show us the way to go. For that, we give you praise and thanksgiving. And Father, I ask that the Word of God tonight penetrates hearts and minds, that we become different, that we grow and become stronger in you, that we have insight and revelation to who you are. And we give you praise and thanksgiving for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. It's a common passage of Scripture, and the pastor's ministered on it many times here. But I just want to um, start there, and we'll, then we'll move on into some other things. In verse number 13 of Matthew chapter 16, it reads, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus asked who people were saying he was. I'm pretty sure it's not because he needed to find out if he was winning a popularity contest. He wasn't asking how many likes do I have on Facebook, and he wasn't even checking out his marketing strategy and plan to see if it was working. Jesus knew that how people see me or how people know me is directly connected to how people receive from me. He knows that how people honor an individual will determine how people receive from that individual. If we don't honor and esteem someone, there is no possibility of us receiving insight, revelation, wisdom, the miraculous, we won't be receiving anything from that individual. So Jesus was asking this question not to find out if he's accepted, but to find out are they understanding who he is 
because if they understand who he is, it is more likely for him to be able to move in their life and they will experience the supernatural. We know this because in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus could do no mighty work in his own hometown. And they said it was because a prophet is without honor in his own country. So that means wherever one is not honored, it is not possible for them to do mighty work. And this is what Jesus was checking. So after they explained to him who people say he is, they said, well, you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's interesting to note that they were commenting that he was a prophetic, a spiritual person, one with influence, one with ability. They were understanding and acknowledging that, but yet they didn't say he was the Christ, the son of the living God. But when Peter is asked, who do you say that I am? He speaks up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which means that Jesus has right and ability to do things in Peter's life that he may not have the ability to do in other people's life. And of course, we know as the scripture here goes on that Jesus reveals that the Spirit has revealed that. So today, I am believing that the Spirit of God is going to reveal to us who God is. Amen? Because our spiritual life is entirely dependent on who we say God is. Not who God is alone, not who we are alone, but who do we say he is? Do we say he is healer? Because if we don't say he's healer, we'll not have healing manifest in our life. Do we say he is provider? Because if he is not provider in our life, there'll be no supernatural provision. If we say he is deliverer, then he's able to deliver us out of difficulty. But if we just say he's God, he's distant, he's far off, he is or isn't is interested in our life, then we are not going to be able to receive the benefits that God has, has available to us. So how we receive is not dependent on who God is but who we say he is in our life and to us. Amen? That's what makes the word of God so important in our life. The word of God is important because it reveals to us who God is. Specifically, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will reveal who God is to man. Then the epistles reveal who man is to God, or rather, who man is in God. So if we need to have a better understanding and a better revelation of who God is, we need to study the Gospels. If we can't see him as healer in our life, we need to study the Gospels because Jesus said, I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, and the works I do... He says, those are the works of the Father. So if we study what Jesus does, we will begin to understand who our Father God is. 
And so the actions and the activities of Jesus are a direct reflection of who God is. All right, so let's go over to Psalms chapter 50. And we'll see here in Psalms chapter 50, we'll see um, one of the hindrances to knowing who God is. Psalms chapter 50, and in this passage of scripture, he's actually speaking to the wicked, which um, we know wicked not to be just those that are evil, but maybe sometimes it's those that um, have difficulty being consistent. They're in, they're out, they're up, they're down. So in this passage of scripture, he says all the evil things that the wicked do, saying they cast his words aside, um, you consent with thieves, partake with adulterers, give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. And in verse 20 says, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now it's interesting that God goes through and then this text tells all the evil things that are done. And he says, the reason you keep doing vile things is because I was silent and didn't talk to you about it. I didn't say anything. And what he's saying here is, is your thinking, my silence is, your, my, is approval for the way you think of me. Just because God is silent does not mean that he approves of our conduct. He only reproves us when we ask him to reprove us, when we give him an open place or an open space, when we say, Lord, show me what I'm doing wrong. Show me what needs to change in me. Show me what needs to be made different in me. And he said, the problem is in my silence, you've come to the conclusion that I am like you. He's saying, because I've been silent, you've come to the conclusion that I think like you, I act like you, I talk like you. And so what has happened in this is because God has been silent, because there's been no invitation, that mankind, the wicked especially, are left to their own vices that they have developed who God is when it doesn't even represent him in any way. And so the fact that they got by with doing things because they never opened their heart to God, so they have made a God, let we, we could say it that way, that conforms to the way they act and live, that's interested in the way they conduct life and say, that's the way God is. And in truth and reality, this is a people that are making up a God rather than knowing the real God. And when you make up a God, we call that idolatry. You've made something that is God to you that really isn't God at all. All right. So he says in here that 
We need to understand that just because God is not confronting us does not mean that God agrees with us, okay? Because sometimes we have thought processes. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 even tells us that his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. And we don't ever want to get to the place that we assume then that every thought we think is the way God thinks or every action that we do is the way God does. Every response we have is exactly how God is thinking because we are um, created by God, but then we develop as we walk in life and many times our experiences, our education, our hurts, our wounds, our ups, our downs, our walkings have developed in us a thought pattern, a thought process. We could even call it philosophical thinking that really isn't God-like, but because it's so strong and firm in us and we bear the tag of Christian, we assume that's the way God feels about it. So in going farther in this, I want to look at some things that were done and said in the Gospels and specifically some things that Jesus rebuked people for thinking or saying because he's trying to reveal the Father. And for full revelation of the Father, we have to understand who God isn't. We have to understand who the Father isn't, okay? So with that being said, let's go over and start with Luke chapter 9. We're going to do most of our study in the Gospels. So in Luke chapter 9, and all of them, because they're Gospels, will be very familiar stories. In Luke chapter 9, when the day began to wear away in verse 12, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they might go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But he said, Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Notice there was a need here. These people had been here for a great length of time. And we knew they were hungry. It's getting dark. It's getting nighttime. And the disciples are urging them, send these people away because we're in a deserted place. They're going to be hungry. We don't know how to handle this. We don't know what to do. And so send them away. Quit preaching is what they're saying. Quit preaching. Send them on so that um, they can get something to eat. And Jesus' response was, you give them something to eat. Now, it's interesting to know that the God we serve 
always has a plan. Regardless of the need, he always has a plan. And his plan at this particular time was you give him something to eat. Now, the disciples are thinking, give them something to eat. What do you got? I haven't got anything in my pockets. You got anything? Do we even have enough money to go and buy something, bring it back and feed all these people? And what we notice here is they were excuse-minded of why they couldn't, and God was possibility-minded with yes, you can. The Spirit of the Lord gave me this phrase, and he said, when you say, I can't, I hear you won't. Because I always have a plan of being more than enough. I am never lacking. The God we serve is never lacking. The God we serve is never hindered by our excuses. The God we serve is never without a plan. The God we serve is always able in any situation, in any dilemma, in anything going on in your life. He has a plan and he has a way. But we have to get to the place where we never have an excuse of what the hindrances are, the reasons it can't happen, the whys we don't want it to happen, and all these things. Because when we start in with, I can't, God hears, you won't. Amen? He is a God that is never restricted by our ability but he is restricted by our willingness or our obedience. So if you begin to see this is God is not hindered or restrained by what power you possess, but he is restrained or limited by your unwilling heart or your disobedient attitude. That is the only thing that can keep God from moving through you and proving to the world who he is. He is always the God of how. And when we try to figure out the how, we become carnal in our thinking. Notice what the disciples thought. Well, what do we have? Um, can we go buy something? There's no possibility of having enough. See, because they didn't know the how. But God is never asking us to know the how. He is asking us to trust him that he is more than able. Hallelujah. And as we look at the final passage here, notice there was 12 baskets full of leftovers. And we can get so stuck in God just meeting the need we forget that he is El Shaddai more than enough. He is abundantly able. He is not always looking for you to squeak by or squeak through. He wants you to be able to plunder what the enemy has got out there and have more than enough left over. There was 12 disciples handing out fragments and there, each one of them comes back with a basket load, meaning there was more than enough to feed all these people and the basket they're handing it out of is still full. It's still full. Our needed supply 
will never bankrupt him. And if we get out, we must get out of the just enough mentality so we can see who God really is. God is more than enough. Not always just enough. He is more than enough. Who is God? The God that is more enough. That does not regard our excuses of why he can't demonstrate his quantity and abundance beyond anything we've ever known or seen before. He is more than enough. Hallelujah. And one thing we have to understand is we can never allow our inability to receive. Our inability to receive does not demonstrate that he is unwilling or incapable. Okay? Our unwillingness to receive or our inability to receive. See, the beautiful thing is we can always change that. We can always change that it's too hard to receive or we're not able to receive. We can always change that. But we have to understand we will never change God. He will always be more than enough. So we need to stretch ourselves to understand who is God. He's more than enough in any situation. He has a plan. He has a method. He has a way. And we don't even have to figure out how. We just have to take the first step that he's commanded us to take because our obedience or disobedience determines whether or not he has a way to get it to us. Amen? All right, so we serve the God that is more than enough. Let's go on to the next one in Mark chapter 10. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's interesting in the feeding of the 5,000 how Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He knew they didn't have anything. He knew there wasn't money or time or whatever to go shopping, okay? He knew all those pieces, but yet that didn't stop him from giving the command because when God gives you a command to do something beyond what you're able, it's just so that you get the benefit of seeing how God can move. Do you not know that it marked these disciples, when they started handing out and never ran empty? Hallelujah. All right, next one. Let's go on to Mark chapter 10, verse number 13. And Jesus here, they, have, they brought little children to Jesus, Mark 10, 13, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. If you're greatly displeased, that means you don't have a suggestion. It means he's greatly, mega displeased. And said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child while by, will by mo, no means enter it, excuse me. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Okay, so what we have here is people are bringing their children to Jesus. 
And the disciples see them bringing their children to Jesus, and they say, no, 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 no. We don't have time for that. You know, that's not necessary, um, whatever it is. And Jesus rebukes the disciples for that. And what we have here is proof <clears throat> that to God there is nothing or no, no one that is considered insignificant. Jesus considered the children significant to the kingdom of God. So if you think about this, the disciples didn't want to be bothered with children, but how many of us determined that we're just insignificant to God? Right here is proof and validity that God never considers anyone insignificant. The disciples were trying to filter who was important, who wasn't important. They were trying to filter all through that. And yet Jesus is not happy about them pushing the children aside. So much so that he blesses these children. He empowers them to prosper. But he also says that they are an example. You disciples might think that these children are insignificant or these people are insignificant, but I count them important. In fact, you could learn some lessons from these children because the attitude and heart that they approach God is the same way anyone needs to approach me in my kingdom. And so many times we get lied to by the enemy thinking that we are not as important as someone else. We are not as um, uh, valuable to Jesus as someone else. And yet in this particular passage of scripture, when the disciples are trying to put aside the insignificant, Jesus said, oh no, you don't. Everyone is significant to me. In fact, if you could have an attitude and a heart like them, you would see more of the kingdom of God. Because he says, unless, unless that you become as a little child, you won't see that kingdom. So not only is it he considers them significant, but we have to also, if we're going to be godlike, we're going to have to know that there is no one we encounter in life that is insignificant to God. And our viewpoint or perspective of someone else needs to be they are absolutely valuable to God. And many times we can get to the place of um, they don't have much to add to me. They don't do much for me. They're not adding to me. And we can get to where we consider them then rather insignificant in life. They're not important to me. But that is an ungodly and demonic attitude because Jesus said anyone that considers someone else insignificant, then that greatly displeases him. He wants us to understand the value of all humanity. And it doesn't matter on race. It doesn't matter in age. It doesn't matter in economic ability 
It doesn't matter in physical ability. It doesn't make any difference on educational ability. Everyone is significant. And if we dismiss someone aside, that greatly displeases him. We want to be significant, but you're going to have significance as you understand other people's significance. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And sometimes we need to recognize that the way we value people is so short and small compared to how God values people. Amen. So not only do we have a God that is more than enough, we have a God that thinks everyone is important. Amen. So let's go over to the next one. Luke chapter 9. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9, verse number 51. And it says this. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So here we have a passage of scripture when um, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, but he's passing through um, uh, another region, through the village of the Samaritans. And the disciples, as they're going through, you have to understand that everywhere Jesus had gone, people had thronged him, people um, clung to him, they expected to get miracles from him, they expected to see signs and wonders from him. They expected to have the supernatural, or maybe for some they call it the spectacular workings done whenever they went anywhere. Now, the disciples were like they're, you know, they're more than just uh, the road crew or the groupies of the fan club. They are also participating with him and watching people and seeing, getting to see what all Jesus is doing for people. So they go through this village of the Samaritans, and no one seems to be excited to have Jesus come. They're all thinking, well, don't they know this is Jesus the Christ? This is the one they're excited to, they should be excited to have. They should understand that this is Jesus, and right here, he is walking through their village, why aren't they expecting something? Why aren't they anticipating something? Why aren't they coming out of their homes? Why aren't they filling the streets? Why isn't this happening? And so the disciples get a brilliant idea. And they remembered what happened when Elijah was not received. And so they decide, we're going to do what Elijah did. And we're going to call fire down on them. Don't you want that, Jesus? Because we have that precedence in the old covenant that if they don't receive, we call fire down from them. And Jesus makes a comment and says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. 
And sometimes we get into this, this place that if we get done wrong, we get to an attitude of, get them, God. Get them for what they've done to me. Get them for what they have uh, uh, afflicted me with. And um, in case we haven't discovered yet, yet, Jesus not, is not in the get them business. He is in the forgiving business. And many times we feel that if God gets them, it will validate me. It will point to the fact that, see, I was right, they were wrong. And it may not be just in the fact of they've wronged us, but it can even be in the situation where people haven't lived their life right, they haven't lived their life clean, they haven't lived their life walking with God. And so then they encounter some kind of difficulty and we want to just chalk it up to, well, they got what was coming to them. But Jesus does not have that attitude. He does not have the attitude of, I hope, that they get what's coming to them if they've been sowing wrong seed. Jesus has an attitude of, I hope that they repent so the seed and the harvest can be altered. God is not looking to inflict judgment on people. We have proof of that just in the age that the world is today. If God was always looking to pass judgment, we probably wouldn't be here. But God is more interested in mercy than judgment. If we go over and look just for a moment in James chapter 2, verse 13, it says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. One translation says, Mercy has dominion over judgment. So we understand the mercy of God is more powerful than the judgment of God. The ability for God to love you is stronger than the ability that he wants to exert to punish you. God is always looking for a way to demonstrate his mercy. He does not have the thought to destroy people's lives. And God is never looking to give people what they deserve. We only want people to get what they deserve when we feel we deserve the good things. But in all truth, without Jesus and him making the sacrifice of going to hell, we all deserved hell. And what happens is, when we start thinking about what people deserve, we make the goodness of God something that can be earned and it's really just something that's received, okay? So there's no place where we need to get into an attitude of give them what they deserve, God. Cause them to reap the harvest on that, Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that God keeps harvest from you when you've been sowing wrong seed. He can't because you're the, he's 
He's the author of the seed time and principle harvest, um, the principle of seed time and harvest. He's the author of it. But we're the initiator of what we want that harvest to be. So whatever seed we sow, that means that's the seed we're going to reap because God is not mocked. The principle happens. But anytime we sow a wrong seed and then we repent, then the harvest is changed. Now, judgment is not received. Judgment is not obtained, but instead mercy comes to us. Okay? And God is more interested in finding a way to get mercy to people than he is interested in getting judgment to people. Okay? And we can never think that some harm done to someone that harmed us validates our attitude and our position concerning them. If we can't walk in mercy continually, we will not receive continual mercy. And you never know when you're going to need mercy. So we have a God that is more than enough. We have a God that values every person. And we have a God that favors mercy over judgment. Okay, let's go to another one here. Mark chapter 9. Hallelujah. Mark chapter 9 in verse 38. It says, John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Now, it's interesting, this scripture, this word forbade him, is the same word that Jesus rebuked the disciples for not allowing the little children to come. Okay, so they're putting it off and Jesus was putting them off when they wouldn't let kids come. And your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him for no one who works a miracle my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Okay, so we have here the disciples are thinking that they're a group. They have a, a grouping of people and they're thinking if you're not in our group, then you're wrong. If you're not one of us, then you're wrong. And Jesus said that is not the case. So what we see here, we see that we serve a God that is not competitive. Interesting enough, God doesn't even compete for your attention. God is a gentleman that waits. He is not competitive between people. He is not competitive for individual people. That is not who God is. God waits, but he is not in any way divisive. Hallelujah. God is not a respect of persons, meaning I love them and not you because you're in this with me? See, the disciples thought that we're the right crowd and everybody else doing things, hallelujah, in your name is the wrong crowd. Now, isn't that interesting? It wasn't that, it wasn't that these people were off doing other things completely or out um, anti-God things. 
These were people doing things in the name of Jesus. These were not people that were worshiping idols or um, casting out devils with occultic practices. These were not those people. These were people that were doing things in his name. And he said, if they're doing it in my name and it's working, they're with us. They're on the same team. Hallelujah. They're a part of what we're doing. Okay? And I think of that when it comes to other churches and denominations that serve the same God. I'm thinking of churches that serve Jesus. I'm not talking about people doing other things outside of God. We're talking about people that are doing things in the name of Jesus. We're talking about people that serve the same God we serve. There are other gods out there, and I'm not talking about those religions that worship and follow other gods. I'm talking about the people that serve the same Jesus that we serve, but don't do it exactly like we do it. And it comes down to this. God is not concerned about doctrine as much as he is wanting to keep division out. God is not grieved by inaccuracy in our walk with him, but he doesn't want strife. God isn't in our straining for perfection, that if we're perfect, we're acceptable. Instead, he's concerned about our peace. Because anyone that names the name of Jesus is saved and they are a joint heir with us of all that Jesus has. Now, there's varying levels of understanding of God. There's varying levels of spirituality in God. But that doesn't mean we cast them out or cast them aside because we serve a God that is not competitive. And his ultimate plan is to bring us to all be one in Christ. We're probably, we'll be learning throughout eternity things we didn't know about God. So we might be at different classroom levels when we get to heaven. I don't know. But it's important to know that what God wants is unity in his church body. Amen? He doesn't look for us to be all the same, but he's looking for us to be undivided. How much more effective would the body of Christ be if there was never found division in it? And sometimes we have to stop and think, who are we willing to defend? Who are we willing to defend in God? Are we willing to defend people of other denominations and other, th other um, attacks when, uh, that are against them? Or is it only us four no more that are right, so everybody else is wrong. Now, think for a moment if God would even connect with that philosophy when he gave his life to save the whole world. Just because you can't be in agreement does not mean you have to be divided. Hallelujah. Because the question isn't who's right and who's wrong. But our goal should be, who can be the most like God? 
who is always loving and is never competitive. Amen? So we know that God is a God that is more than enough. We know that our God never considers anyone insignificant. We know that the God we serve favors mercy over judgment. We know that we have a God that is not competitive or divisive. Hallelujah. And let's go to the next one in Matthew chapter 20. This will be the last one we do. Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 20. It says, The mother of Zebedee's sons, which was James and John, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She's come to Jesus and has a request. And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Huh, a big request. She's asked for prominence. She's asked for position. She's asked for places of honor for her two children, like any mom would want. We're coming up on Mother's Day right now. Every mom wants their kids to succeed beyond them. Okay, so we understand why she has said this. But if we look down in verse 24, it says, When the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be the first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we have a mom that has requested this place of prominence for her children. We have 10 other disciples that are upset that she asked. We don't know. Maybe they're upset she asked before they got a chance to. Maybe they're upset because they knew this wasn't something um, that should be asked. We don't know exactly what it is, but what we know is she made a request of personal greatness for, to Jesus. And we see that they get upset, and then Jesus begins to teach them about greatness. And he said, greatness is serving. Hallelujah. One thing to know, God doesn't make us great upon request because he doesn't support personal agenda. He supports people, but he does not support personal self-agenda to be made great. Let's look at another one in light of this. Okay, and these two work together to reveal who God is. Luke chapter 12, in verse 16, Jesus speaks a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Okay, this is a certain rich man, it's yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. 
Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What kind do we serve? A God do we serve? We serve a God that never promotes selfishness. He never promotes selfishness. See, in this passage of scripture in Luke, we see that God is not interested in us building a personal empire. And he's tell, he's in this parable, he says, it was foolish to keep accumulating to the place that you could say, I'll take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And he calls this man fool. Because our life is not about what we can attain or what we can accumulate, but a God life is what we can give and what we offer. See, it's not what comes into us that makes us great, but what comes through us that makes us great. And we can get stopped and locked into a matter of accumulation, a matter of promotion, a matter of position. Well, doesn't God care about those things? Absolutely, he cares about those things. But what he cares about those things for is he wants to give it to people that are willing to be a channel for, through which it can flow. Great inventors and great men in the earth say things like, um, if you want to become great, think of what you can contribute to humanity. Jesus said, if you want to become great, become a servant of all. Okay? And real satisfaction in life does not come from the fact that you have accumulated more, but real satisfaction in life comes from the fact that I can touch more people with this. I can do more. I can do more. I can do more. I can do more. That's where satisfaction lies. That's where delight lies. You know, sometimes we get frustrated because we're not getting our quest for promotion or we're not getting the advancement we desired. But um, let's see, where is it? James 4, I think. James 4, let me, I think it's James 4, chapter 3, makes this comment. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss or off target. You're asking amiss because your purpose for receiving is so that you can spend it on your, on your pleasures. Okay? So it's not that God is opposed to your pleasure, but he's more interested in our pleasing him. And when we get after obtaining, accumulating, and receiving, that our mentality is, my idea for accumulating is so that I can turn and do this for someone else. My idea of promotion and positioning is because then I'll have an opportunity to influence this. We should never become a place where things flow in and they become stagnant. Instead, we are to become a people that things of God flow through us. He says he gives seed to a sower. He's wanting things to flow through us. He's not looking for us to just make our life wonderful. 
because in this passage of scripture, he said, fool, this night your soul will be required. Then whose are these things going to be? You're not even going to have any say of whose hands are going to have it after you. Now we think, well, we've written a will. We've done all this. How many of you have seen those things can get overturned? And those things do not necessarily always happen the way the original author of that will intended for it to happen. Once you're gone, you have no control of all of your things that you've accumulated. Your empire might get divided amongst everyone. And then what good is it done? You're better off doing everything you can that can impact other lives because Jesus says then there'll be treasure waiting for you in heaven if you have focused on what can I do to impact someone else? How do I get to greatness in this life? Be willing to serve everyone else. See, our service is more important than our success. Hallelujah. I heard a minister say one day that no one comes to the end of their life and regrets not being more selfish. No one regrets the fact that they weren't more selfish. People come to their end of their life and realize that everything they had in their hands that they could have done and didn't. Hallelujah. God is interested in everyone but not just in you as the only one. He's thinking of how can I get you to be a part of my vision to benefit everyone. Hallelujah. And we serve a God that will not and does not promote selfishness. You know, um, hard-heartedness always accompanies selfishness. You can tell when you're getting selfish because your heart starts getting hardened to the things of God and you're not as interested in God. And with this, um, it's because selfishness is an attribute of pride because it's about me. And selfishness breeds division. It breeds, we saw that with the disciples, it divided 10 against two there. Um, It breeds isolation. This man said, I have many goods laid up for myself. I'm going to take my ease right here. He didn't talk about having a party. He just talked about he's had enough. He's going to be all by himself. Um, Selfishness breeds compromise because God is always quickening us to be unselfish. So if you remain selfish where there's an impulse to not be selfish, you're starting to compromise. It gives place to deception because you don't see things accurately. Understand the opposite of the love of God is selfishness. Sometimes there is people out there in the world that don't even know where to spend their money. They don't even know what to do with it. They have their homes, they have their boats, they have their play toys, they have their jets, they have all these things and they've run out of places to spend it and don't even know what to do because even with this huge accumulation of stuff, they're still miserable. It's all about what can we turn and do with it for someone else. And it comes to a place that we have to decide 
Is it about what I want or is it about what God wants for me? Hallelujah. God always looks to advance others. So if we start thinking about how can we advance others, we will lose any hint of selfishness in us. And remember, he's interested in you getting your desires of your heart. The word of God tells us in, his, in it, Psalms 37, 4, that you delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But we forget the condition. See, because if we are delighting ourselves in God, we will not be selfish. But see, just the quest for getting the desires of our heart without delighting in God gives us an opportunity to be selfish and we're probably asking amiss and we're not receiving. So then what happens? We're offended with God because he didn't do things my way, the way I wanted it to be done. And now we can't even believe for a miracle anymore. We can't believe what God would do for us. And it's all been because we have been walking selfishly, unknowingly, and are not walking in the will of God for our life. Because, the, and you know, sometimes we think, well, I give my kids all this time. That's still selfish. It's your kids. Okay? We're talking about touching people that have nothing to give back to us. We're touching people that have nothing to offer. We're talking about touching people that have nothing in this life that they could ever contribute to us. Because God is not selfish. We serve a God that is so in love with all humanity that he will not allow any of us to be selfish. And if you find yourself being offended at God and wondering why God hasn't done something, maybe we need to take a step back and say, why do you want this? You know, um, uh, this earlier this week, I was meditating on selfishness, and this thought came to me that a person that is unselfish never knows when someone else is selfish because you can't have stolen from you what you're willing to give. And so if you're unselfish, you never feel like someone else is selfish because I'm willing to give them everything, so there's nothing they can take from me. I never feel violated to give. Hallelujah. Amen. So... In this today, we see that God is always more than enough. We serve a God that counts everyone significant and valuable. We serve a God that favors mercy over judgment. We serve a God that is not competitive or divisive. We serve a God that does not promote selfishness in any way. You know, Psalms 103, 7 said that the children of Israel knew how God would act, but Moses knew his ways. So Moses knew not only how he would act, but he also knew why he would do it. And he understood the thought processes of God. And we need to reconnect with who God is so that anything within us that we think is the way God thinks can be torn up and torn down. Because as we serve God the way that God should be served, as we know God the way God should be known, all of us will experience a greater and better life. So if we don't know who God is, take time. Study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Study this out. 
find out who the father is, find out what he agrees with, find out what pleases him, find out what displeases him, find out what he rebukes, and you'll begin to understand God in a whole new way. And as you understand who God is, you'll more clearly understand who you are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have this word to find out who you are. Help us to grow and develop in who you are. Thank you, Father, that we can serve of God that is more than enough, that counts all of us valuable, that is not divisive, that is not selfish, Father. I thank you for all these attributes and more that we can serve you without fear. I thank you, Father, that you're working in us a mentality of knowing who you are. I give you praise and thanksgiving, Father, that the good work you began in each and every one of us, you will bring it into completion. And for this, we give you praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. We'd like to take this opportunity to encourage those listening from anywhere in Central Oregon to join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for our regular services. We understand that many do not have a home church, and we can't emphasize enough the importance of connecting with a church family. We'd be honored to meet you and spend time with you praising God.